So here's the challenge. How do you break Colorado up into eight pieces while meeting all these different criteria? The pieces must be as compact as possible with completely equal populations. You have to keep cities and towns and communities of interest, whatever those are, together as much as possible. And oh yeah, Try to make the pieces politically competitive. So don't advantage Republicans. Don't advantage Democrats. Do you you want me to do that right now? Get out my map, my graph paper? Well, you know, Andy, we do still want you to keep your day job. That's actually the work Uh. of Colorado's new Congressional Redistricting Commission. From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Benta Brooklyn. Joining me in the studio is CPR's Andrew Kenny. Hello. And this week, we are glad to have our Washington, D.C.-based reporter, Caitlin Kim, with us remotely. Hi, everyone. It's Thursday morning, April 8th, and definitely starting to feel like spring in Colorado. Yep, all the little buds are budding, although we'll see if that changes by tomorrow. (laughs) I've jinxed us, so now we're going to get a snowstorm. For this episode, we are going to dive into Colorado's grand political experiment, having a public commission, not elected officials, redraw the state's congressional and statehouse boundaries. And this happens once a decade that these boundaries are redrawn. The process, though, is already threatened by delays out of its control and has gotten off to a bit of a rocky start. That's right, Benta. Um, The big issue is that the census data, the final census data, is expected to be released sometime um, around September 30th. But the problem is the possible new congressional district maps are supposed to be presented a month earlier and selected by September 15th. Oh, wow. So, Lynn, you're essentially saying the deadline is happening before the date is even in. Exactly. So this was a big issue for their first meeting. Do you work with preliminary data or not? I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say when voters approved these commissions, people never would have predicted that we'd be in this situation where they're trying to create all these maps and they don't even have the census data. Exactly. I don't think anyone really thought about a pandemic impacting the or delaying rather the the census data. So, you know, how do you do your job when you don't get the final data until after the deadline? You know, there's one bright spot. They are still expecting to get the preliminary highest level number, literally just the population of the state at the end of April. And they could use that to get started on drawing some of these maps. But Mm. this is really a pickle for them. Yeah. And I mean, states across the country are also dealing with this delay, obviously. So we're not the only ones. But I think what sets Colorado somewhat apart is that the timelines for creating these maps are part of the Colorado Constitution now. Yeah, that is part of a change that was pretty exciting at the time that uh, voters in 2018, 71 percent of them approved amendments Y and Z, which created this uh, independent redistricting commission which is something only a few other states have done. Once again, Colorado is out ahead of the pack. And the reason this idea is gaining popularity is because it's supposed to get us away from gerrymandering. It's supposed to reduce the temptation for politicians to draw maps that benefit them. And instead, it puts it in the hands of this new commission. Like, as you noted, you know, about 70 percent of people voted for this. That's I mean, to get 70 percent of people to agree on something is not easy. No, it's not. And commissioners won't just be tweaking existing boundaries because Colorado has seen some population growth. So it's it's likely we are going to get a new congressional seat. Mm-hmm. That means the commission may be reimagining the entire map 
and adding a competitive seat. Um, yeah, and you know, while I am looking forward to following an eighth Congress member in the House, I will say this. You have to look at this, I think, also on the national level. Each side is going to want to get as much of an advantage as they can, especially in a House that is as narrowly divided as it is. How do you get a competitive seat when both parties are seeking to get this competitive advantage over who controls the House in 2022. So while Colorado has tried to develop this nonpartisan way of drawing lines, both the Republican and the Democratic parties are going to be looking at this because this eighth seat is going to help shape the balance of control in the House. So Colorado is going to matter, and this new eighth seat is going to matter in that political equation. So, Lynn and Andy, you both have been covering these first organizational meetings that are happening with this Congressional Redistricting Commission. Mm-hmm. It's clear it's going to be a difficult, complicated process, and, and that's true anywhere you're going to be doing this. So many different factors to consider. But tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about how the commissioners are selected. And, you know, some people may be wondering, like, why does someone want to do this job? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> Right. Well, so they had to apply, right? And from the applicants they got, the pool got narrowed down until you had 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans, and 50 unaffiliated voters. And then two were selected from each group using this high-tech method, you know, a bingo ball cage selection (laughs) method is what I like to call it. Yeah. Actually, one of the commissioners discussed the thrill of seeing his name picked out of the bingo ball cage. Gosh, I mean, most people want to, like, win money or something, right? Not just be selected to a commission. Hey, they do get a per diem for, a, you know, a little money for each meeting that they have to attend. And so th- there were some parameters. Not just anyone could run. You know, you can't be a recent elected official or someone who's run for office recently or worked for someone recently who is in office. So trying to keep the politics out of the actual commissioners. And then we also had geographic diversity that had to be on the commission. You know, you can't be a lobbyist. So you're trying to make it as equitable as possible. Funnily enough, all those restrictions made it kind of hard to recruit enough people. I remember they had to go out of their way to encourage more people to apply. But, you know, in the end, they did get a nice diverse pool. And I I had to listen to the first meeting, and that was sort of like really a lot of the administrative stuff, Mm -hmm. but also like introducing themselves. So there was this icebreaker question, you know, what's your earliest memory of political or civic engagement? My mother dragging me around the state of Montana when I was in first grade um, following um, Jesse Jackson on his campaign. And it was what you'd expect going into the voting booth when you were a kid with your parent, and some you might not have. Campaign headquarters in Colorado Springs stuffing envelopes with all the little old ladies who were there stuffing envelopes, and I was the only uh, high school kid in the room. You know, I came from Pennsylvania, and we didn't caucus there. So I decided I had to go out and figure out how to caucus, because none of my friends knew how to caucus either. I think my most poignant early memory is the first time I voted for president. And I just remember... It's, it's kind of nice to hear those early memories and that the commissioners are coming at this with, I don't want to say a sense of pride or or if you felt that, but like a sense of the responsibility. Yeah, it's such a great question to open with because, you know, I couldn't help but be reminded of the smell of school gymnasiums and getting to watch my mom operate this crazy machine. And uh, so, yeah, I thought that moment was kind of sweet, actually. Maybe that sense of optimism and high-mindedness and unity did take a bit of a turn 
Yeah, this became another political WebEx drama pretty quickly. Let me explain, though. The commission selected a chair. His name is Danny Moore. He's an entrepreneur out of Englewood. He's a, a military veteran, a Republican, one of two black commissioners. And Andy, was he selected to chair the commission with pretty widespread support? Yeah, everyone gave their speeches and they all, you know, talked about their desire to do public service and they did a few rounds of voting and Mr. Moore ended up getting super majority support, which you needed to become the chair. So just explain what happened, because this all unraveled then very quickly after he's selected as chair. Yeah. So for a little context, the chair is not actually that powerful of a position. It's, you know, they get to run the meetings and gavel things in and gavel, gavel out. It's administrative, but they are the face of the commission. And soon after he was selected, reporters started looking through Mr. Moore's Facebook posts, and they found references in his posts to the, quote, Chinese virus, Mm. to the, quote, Democrat steal. That was in a post that he said he was making for a friend. And in general, just really questioning the whole premise of mail-in voting, saying that you can't control what happens to your mail ballot after you submit it, and buying into this whole idea of undermining people's faith in elections. It sounds basically what, like what you're saying is he said things that would put into question how objective and how nonpartisan he could be on this commission. Yeah, according to some of his commissioners, yes. First off, when you say people started looking at someone's Facebook posts, you know that's probably not going to end well. It but doesn't. So views that the election was stolen and not fair... Those views are fairly common among Republican voters in Colorado and across the country. And I would note that in Colorado, there's no evidence of that. The state does risk-limiting audits. The paper ballots match up the tallies. Local officials, Republicans, Democrats, all vouch for the state system. So there is no evidence for widespread fraud. But it is a, a fairly, I mean, I think we all know, widely held belief. How concerned were commissioners and and other people outside of the commission about him questioning the election results specifically? Yeah, well, the reporting on it took off fairly quickly. I think Nine News was the first with the story. And the result was that there was this media uproar. And at their most recent meeting, he had to face some really tough questions from his fellow commissioners. Mm. They questioned his ability to be objective. One questioned his ability to tell fact from fiction, Mm. and every single member, including all the other Republicans, voted to take away that role that he had of chair. So interesting kind of organizational discussion, but you know, (laughs) let's talk about kind of what's next. I know one of the things that's part of this process are you know close to thirty public hearings across Colorado to get feedback on proposed maps. How is that going to work? It's a way to sort of make sure that everybody gets a say in how representative their district is or how representative the districts in Colorado are. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a a noble goal, but I think it's also going to be a very difficult goal to get to, especially if you want things like competitive districts, keeping areas of interest together. It's going to be a tough job, and I don't envy them that. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of how I view it, and maybe this isn't how other people see it, is with these independent groups deciding this, Colorado was trying to, yes, take the politics out of it and make it as much of a science as possible. And there are things that are easier to calculate, like you have to have equal populations and that type of thing. But there's a lot of other more subjective things. I think, Caitlin, you talked about communities of interest. That's subjective. You know, what is a community Mm -hmm. of interest? You know, we all as individuals are part of many different communities of interest. So what community of interest? Is it geography? Is it school districts? Is it race, ethnicity, religion? I mean, there's so many different ways that are all valid communities of interest, Mm -hmm. but will impact what these maps look like. This is like a technical subject, but I think that 
people will end up really caring about this because if you have your community of interest, whatever it is together, you have more power to influence who represents you and what do they do. And then also, I think people get attached to their district in a way. I'm sure some people might be upset or surprised if, for example, Ed Perlmutter is no longer their congressman. (laughs) Colorado is likely going to get this ace congressional district, which I think makes this process that much more complicated, but maybe more opportunities as well. Where is this 8th district going to go? Or what are you guys hearing? What's the speculation out there? I mean, I'm assuming it's going to be where we're seeing most of the population growth along the front range. Yes. I think, you know, depending on which maps you see, I think the ones that are interesting are the ones that put the new 8th congressional district up north, right? You sort of get a Larimer, Weld County, 8th district and trying to make it competitive. But if you do that, you know, you could also take out Pueblo because Pueblo doesn't want to be part of the third congressional district. And that becomes part of the fourth. And But that's the thing, right? Like it becomes this puzzle. You move one thing or you add yeah. one thing and then you have to shift everything else. For me, the, the, the thing that I find interesting about putting the eighth congressional district up north, you know, this Fort Collins, Weld County, Larimer County area is what happens to Ken Buck? Ken Buck lives in Windsor. He could get written out of his own district. Interesting, which is what can happen during redistricting. Another possibility I saw raised by Magellan Strategies when they were kind of exploring different scenarios was that if you wanted to create a majority-minority district, as they call it, you know, one where Latinos and other people make up a majority of it, you could carve out Aurora and parts of the surrounding cities as well. Although we'll see if that is a priority for them or not. And then, Lynn, you had mentioned Pueblo, which is in the third congressional district, which I think is a very interesting district because it's such a large geographic part of the state, you know, including Grand Junction and Mountain Towns, Western Colorado, Alamosa, Pueblo. You know, it's a a huge geographic district. And, And what's interesting right now is Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert represents that district. And we have Democratic state lawmakers who are also vying to try to unseat her. One of them is Carrie Donovan. She's in the state Senate and she kind of lives on the very like the border of that district. Um, you know, she's raised a lot of money, but when, when things are redrawn, she may not even live in this district. Exactly. Um, as you mentioned, you know, One of the things about redistricting is lines will move. And Donovan, who did raise, of of all the Democratic uh, nominees so far, she raised the most, about $630,000 to try and challenge Boebert, who also raised a lot of money, about $700,000. But, but you know, it it does come into question, like, will she still be in the district? And I did have to fact check this because I thought it was kind of strange. A Congress member does not have to live in the district he or she represents. What? (laughs) Yeah, apparently Colorado laws, you don't have to be, you don't have to actually live in your district to run for Congress. But I mean, I would say, you know, politically, that's, that's going to be, that's going to be bad. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that'd be horrible politically. But she could be raising a lot of money and not end up in the district. One other interesting thing looking at these possible maps is just how square they all are. These shapes just look like something out of Lego. They're, they're so pleasing and compact. What <laughs> like do you mean? The, like the, <laughs> the requirements are that they're contiguous and compact. So they're very normal looking shapes. And, you know, I was, as I've often mentioned oh, in yeah. North Carolina before this, where there was once a great magazine article just looking at all the craziest shapes that we've gotten. And, you know, in North Carolina, like some of these districts for different political races would have arms that like head up the highway and like snake around and like grab a town to try to bring it in to manipulate the numbers. Well, I was going to say, though, when you were talking about that minority majority district, 
that did kind of look like a horseshoe. It was a little bit odd shaped for, for Colorado. Yeah, and those kind of irregular shapes are what happens not just for gerrymandering, like you're pointing out, but also just for when you try to capture different communities of interest together. And I think it's interesting, you know, I'm at the state capitol pretty much every day and seeing, you know, there's a lot of ambition in that building for people to run for different jobs or stay in their current seats. And there's just speculation about where lines are going to be because it, it can provide a lot of opportunities. We talked about Pueblo, the Senate president, Leroy Garcia, is in Pueblo. What if Pueblo moved into a different district? I mean, there's always speculation. Is Garcia going to run for Congress someday? You know, he hasn't said anything, but there's there's always that, yeah. you know, chess game yeah. of like, if this person runs for this seat, what will it happen to this? And something opens up here. And especially with the 8th Congressional District, um, I know Republicans are really excited about the possibility of having a competitive seat. They could win back more congressional seats. Obviously, they just lost a U.S. Senate seat, which isn't part of this process. But I think there's a lot of opportunities that people are going to be very intensely watching. I think that kind of speaks a bit to why state lawmakers were fairly supportive of this idea of handing this power off. Like, it gets rid of the possibility that, yeah, your party will be in power and you get to draw the lines to benefit yourself. But it also means that if you're out of power, you have less to lose because you know, hopefully, that the maps will ultimately end up being more fair, more balanced. And we should also point out, without opening up a whole other can of worms, that there's another commission <laughs> doing this for state lawmakers' positions as well. No matter what process you create and how fair it is, you're not going to please everyone. We know that with anything in life and especially something like this where the stakes are really, really high. Yeah. We've had court challenges. That's normal. Any way to avoid that this time, especially if the constitutional timelines can't be met, even if it's because of the census data, does that open up room for more lawsuits? Is that pretty inevitable that these maps will be challenged? Yes. <laughs> yes. I think that's one thing you probably can count on. talk about Colorado politics every week on this show and we do have those moments where we say wait, 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 wait what and I think this week we all have the same moment yep. a lot of people in Colorado who follow politics or who follow sports were aware of the major league baseball all-star game you know I, I'd say for me personally where that game is located or not is not typically on my radar is this high level importance issue but this major sports story became a big political fight, and Colorado was at the center of it. I was sitting in bed looking at Twitter, because that's what Pandemic Lynn does nowadays, <laughs> when I saw these tweets saying, you know, sources saying the All-Star game was going to be moving from Georgia to Colorado. And, you know, I'll be honest, my first thought was, oh, hey, great for Denver. Mm -hmm. And then I started seeing, like, all these Republican operatives on Twitter saying Colorado's voting laws were just as restrictive as Georgia's. And I was like, wait, what? What are they talking about? Yeah, this ended up with Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, getting on Fox News and essentially saying, well, if you look, they've got some of the same restrictions as us. And in fact, they've got fewer in-person early voting days than Georgia, which is true, but completely oh. misses the point. Yeah, right, because we're an all-mail ballot state and 90 plus percent of Coloradans vote by mail and use drop boxes. So it's kind of like people cherry pick something, but it's not the whole truth and it's not 
an accurate picture. Well, maybe the worst example I saw was Sean Spicer, the former White House spokesman under the Trump administration, tweeted out what he said was the list of forms of identification you can use in Colorado, trying to make the point that other states have restrictive ID requirements. But he only included the first three items on the list, which were all forms of photo ID, when actually Colorado also allows like utility bills and all these different forms. I saw some Republican spokesman trying to spin this as like just pointing out that these restrictions in Georgia aren't totally uncommon. But again, the bigger point is that Georgia is getting more restrictive. They're clamping down on mail balloting, especially the absentee balloting, whereas Colorado has embraced it and as a result has one of the very highest turnout rates in the country. Exactly. I will say, going back to Twitter, one of my favorite tweets about this came from our colleague Sam Brash, who said, Welcome to Colorado. All pride for our voting system. No pride for our actual baseball team. <laughs> oh, gosh. Along those lines, my favorite tweet was from another one of our colleagues, Vic Vela. And he said, the Rockies have traded the All-Star game to St. Louis, along with $500 million cash. <laughs> A reference to giving away their All-Star themselves, who will probably end up back in Denver because of this. Yeah. I People are the- not happy with the <laughs> Nolan thing still. But it, it, I thought that was just so fitting. I thought the whole thing was so funny because it was like just resulted in assembling this like Avengers team of literally anyone who knows anything about Colorado politics to thoroughly debunk the idea that Colorado is more restrictive than Georgia. (laughs) That's it for this week's episode. We'll be back in your feeds next week. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join at CPR.org. I'm Benta Berkland with my colleagues Andrew Kenny and Caitlin Kim. If you want to keep up with everything we've been talking about and more, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Andy K-N-N-Y. I'm at Caitlin Kim. I'm at Benta Berkland. This is Purplish from CPR News.